I'll start by telling you a story, and this story is from, it's quite relevant because this is from uh, my time in northern Nigeria. We were visiting one of the sites, uh, a, a quite a remote village, um, and driving into the village, I saw a well-built school, which turned out to be a primary school, and um, also we went to the health center. And at the health center, there was only one male community health worker. And I asked, well, so where do you, where are the women who needed care? They said, well, they're at home. You know, they will be attended to by other women. And then if there's any problem, then they will call this um, um, male um, community health officer. And I said, so why don't they just come here to the clinic? And then he, it's easier for him. You know, he can take care of everybody. They said, no, because he's a male. So I said, well, that's an interesting problem. So if that is of a concern, um, I just passed the primary school. How many girls are in primary six? So primary six is the highest class in primary. And then the village had told me none. I said, okay. How many of them pass on to secondary school? They said, well, I mean, none. They have to um, get married. I said, well, then there lies your problem. Um, um, have you thought about getting more girls through school, through secondary school, and then talking to your local um, uh, MP to get them places in the um, school of nursing? I'm sure the, the politicians can give a few scholarships. Then they come back to your community. They get married in the community, and then they look after your women. They are your own people, and this will reduce the number of women dying. And everybody says, oh, no, that seems like a great idea. Global Development Team. I'm Megan Howe, and you're listening to Unburdened, where we give our cut on global health issues that aren't related to healthcare. In this series, we're exploring how gender equality can make us healthier. And today, we look at the way societies value maternal mortality. My name is Charles Ame. I'm a researcher. My background is in obstetrics and gynecology. I trained in obstetrics in Nigeria um, well over 15 years ago. And um, since then, I've been at the School of Tropical Medicine, where I had the emergency obstetric and quality of care unit. Well, I think um, looking at um, maternal health as just a woman issue is a bit myopic in, in, in thinking. Losing women during what should be a natural physiologic process reduces the chances of um, child survival. I mean, we know that um, you know from uh, you know from from research, and also um, it, you know without women contributing to the economic growth of societies, um, then we we are missing the opportunity to maximize our um, economic power. Also, that will affect overall development. So we need that female workforce. Um, um, so we need women to be alive and healthy to be able to contribute to, um, you know, that overall development. Um, otherwise, you know, we, we run into the problem of not having the ability to um, replace our population um, development um, um, generally and really having a secure society. So. 
I think um, if if you look at women, like um, I see women as um, the queen in the game of chess. And um, if you're going to last very long in the game, um, you know, you cannot afford to lose your queen. As Charles highlights, the health of women in their most physically vulnerable moments impacts the health of our entire societies and the next generation. Developmentally, the first 1,000 days of a child's life, from conception to two years old, is the most critical period for brain development. A mother's health and nutrition deeply influences the health of her child, even in utero. Access to health care, such as anti- and postnatal care or skilled birth attendants, is the cornerstone to better survival rates for mothers and babies. So I think the key is access um, to care. And that's what makes a difference. Uh, somebody who is, a, who is a lawyer, a female lawyer in the United States whose um, who's, um, overall um, house income is, is high, is more likely to have um, you know, a, a better quality of care. Um, a, somebody who is a, probably a school teacher um, you know, in, in England, because the health system is completely different, where um, at, at the point of care, um, services are free. There are no financial barriers to care. You know, the quality of care is completely different. Her chances, her risk, her obstetric risk of death during pregnancy and childbirth is significantly reduced. When you go to some other countries where, you know, um, um, there is that political will is not there, the investment in the healthcare is not there. Things are not put in place to reduce that inequitable access to health. So that means that irrespective, irrespective of your background, rich, poor, educated, non-educated, you know, you should be able to have access to good quality, timely, respectful, um, um, reproductive and maternal healthcare services. Improving access to maternal healthcare is complex. It's not just about boosting the total number of doctors. It's about building sustainable health systems that work in areas that are rural, areas that do in fact lack doctors, where women don't have easy transport to clinics and hospitals, and where governments don't really see the importance of investing in maternal health care. We will need the political will. With the political will, um, if, if we value um, the women in our societies, it means we make enough investments in the healthcare system. And when I mean investments, we are looking at the whole spectrum, both prevention and curative services. Another barrier to good quality care that reduces the risk of morbidity and mortality is distance to healthcare. You know, do we have enough policies to, uh, and, uh, you know, to reduce that distance? Um, for example, I mean, I live in the United Kingdom. Um, where, um, um, you know, you have any problems, you know, uh, women have options. You can't give birth at home. You have a midwife who works in the community. And, um, you know, if you decide to give birth at home, you're low risk and all of that, and something goes wrong, within minutes, an ambulance is there to take you to a hospital. Um, but in other places, the geography is poor, the infrastructure is not there for such um, ambulance systems and all of that. That can become a barrier in itself. But then, it's up to policymakers to try and, you know, address that issue. Limited political support, poorly trained staff, and large distances between health services were all realities for women in northern Nigeria. Ultimately, they struggle to access care. And that's what the Women for Health program aimed to fix. 
The project, funded by the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, ran for eight years in four states in northern Nigeria from 2012 to 2020. Here are two former program staff to paint a picture of what life is like for women in the region. The bleep is a woman is going to be married and take care of the family. So the man, there's a belief that the man is going to be the household. So that issue contributed to whereby ladies or female, right from the beginning, even at home. In fact, even with the gender, some of the gender role that will be given at home, you get to know that, okay, this is where you are going to end up. Because in, in, in home, usually as a lady, as a female, you'll be taking charge of washing the place, cooking the food, sweeping the room, this and that. While male are being sent to school in most of the societies earlier sometimes but so i look at it like it is they were not informed there was no knowledge there was no awareness looking at the importance so the importance of female education was not so clear to the society and that is what contributed that women are always trying to be in the kitchen that's hadiza sabo she's the provost of the college of nursing and midwifery in yobe state in northern nigeria and received training and support from the project. Aditoro Adegoke is a PhD midwife based in Liverpool. She originally hails from Nigeria too. She was the project's technical lead. Uh, let me let me use the data from the Nigeria Demographic um, uh, and Health Survey of 2008 and 2013, you know, to paint, paint that picture, Megan. The Nigeria Demographic Health Survey, NDHS, uh, puts the maternal mortality ratio uh, for Nigeria as 545 per 100,000 live births. Uh, that's the national figure. But then there were a lot of uh, disparities be- between the figures in the south compared with that of the north with the North uh, MMR, maternal mortality ratio, being uh, a lot worse than that of the South. Northern Nigeria, in particular, was uh, one of the most dangerous uh, places to live in sub-Saharan Africa, so for pregnant women and their newborn as at then. There was this uh, publication also by the World Health Organization for that time, and it puts uh, the lifetime risk of a woman dying from childbirth for Northern Nigeria's one in nine, you know, the lifetime risk of dying from pregnancy and childbirth. Aditoro also reminds us, as Charles referenced in the beginning of the episode, that women in the region were prevented from accessing care from a man. So when they get to the health facilities, they are met with uh, men or male health workers. And this is against the, the culture. This is against um, the, the religion, you know, of a woman in, in northern Nigeria. So then they are then faced with having to make, you know, that bleak choice with, between, oh, do I accept uh, this, the care that is being provided by this uh, male health worker? Uh, how uh, uh, how do, do I take that risk? of maybe not accepting the care and then, you know, uh, face the risk of the, the of not doing that, you know, to my own health, to the health of the baby. Or if I accept the care, you know, being faced with uh, being uh, disapproved or being rejected by the community, being uh, ostracized, you know, by the community. So there's really no winning, so to speak, you know, for, for, for the woman. As Charles points out, 
Increasing access to healthcare is complex. It means understanding the barriers to access, like distance to health facilities, poor female education rates, and cultural norms, and figuring out how to address those. Women for Health's strategy was to increase the number and quality of female midwives in these northern states while working within cultural norms and building the political will for greater investment in maternal health care. Here's Hadiza again. So there's a belief in the northern part of the country that let the, 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 the woman take care of her counterparts. And that is why others are allowing their daughters to go and pursue middle free education because they notice that what contributes sometimes back to maternal mortality is in some rural countries, they don't accept the middle free care or the obstetric care from the male counterpart. So because they knew that if they did not allow their wards or their daughters to go and attend the school, then at the end of the day, their wives will be handed in the hand of men. Adatoro also says the program used a whole systems approach. So what we did was to uh, focus on uh, three key aims, you know, to increase the number, to increase the quality, and then to ensure that those uh, women are ultimately deployed to rural areas where they are able you know, to have impact on a maternal, newborn, and child. So all our strategies, all our interventions were focused on those areas, you know, training, everything to do with strengthening training, everything to do with improving access of girls, you know, to be trained as health workers, and then other strategies which focus on uh, ensuring that when they have qualified, you know, they are then deployed to, to rural areas. And of course, because of that, we had to look at various stakeholders, look at various dimensions, ensure that we introduce an holistic approach you know, to, in terms of the uh, strategies and intervention that we introduced. So uh, we supported their training institutes. We worked with community leaders and traditional, uh, traditional religious leaders, you know, to be able to identify women in rural area, to be able to support them during training. We worked with um, uh, educators, you know, teachers in their training institutes, as well as managers, you know, to improve the quality of uh, of education. We worked also with government, with legislators, you know, to improve advocacy to ensure that when uh, the the women qualify, you know, they are recruited, and then they are deployed, you know, to rural areas. So we had this whole system approach. We didn't look at oh, it as okay. It's only about um, producing health workers. We wanted to uh, uh, look at all the other facets, you know, all the other factors that actually has resulted in not having adequate number of health workers, you know, in, in rural areas. To increase the number of midwives, Women for Health strengthened the health training institutes or midwife colleges, across these northern states. They worked with communities and religious leaders to explain the importance of female education and also highlight that being a midwife is honorable. They save lives. Women who completed their studies were guaranteed a job at the end of the program through a contract or bond with the local government. The catch was that the government was able to send them to rural locations where health services were required. Hadiza explains the bond or contract system in a bit more depth. Okay, it's like a MOU, a memorandum of understanding that they have a swear. It's like swearing, taking an oath that is part of their matriculation. 
where they are admitted, a lawyer, a, a lawyer will come and they read out in front of their parents that with all this condition that you one will be subjected for studies for so 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 years with all this and this and at the end of the day it's like and I'm attesting that I shall go back and work in my rural community. They sign and then the lawyer will sign and then it will be kept. Surely in case because others will say that ah that is a very rural area I can't go despite the part that is their is, is, is their local government and some others will be married. We have such cases in the first set. The two or three of them that married and they resisted they cannot go back. We quickly they refer back to the bond that they have signed. So this bond is like tying them, tying them to already a rules that were set at the inception of the program so that they will go back and work for at least complete two years. And by the time they are spending their two years and others are graduating so that they are substituting them. So basically they are working under the, the primary health care setting in that set. The program institutionalized midwifery training and dramatically improved services across the northern states. Uh, in terms of specific national um, data, we're able to improve the number of health workers from around 1,000 uh, when we started the program to over 10,000 at the completion of the program in 2030. So the, the actual figure is 10,071 at the completion of the, of the program. But uh, uh, other achievements also include, you know, being able to strengthen the air training institutes themselves. So at the beginning of the program, there was only one air training institute uh, that met up with the requirement for full accreditation by the regulatory body. So at the completion of the program, we had 23 air training uh, institutions that had uh, full accreditation from the uh, regulatory body. Uh, having full accreditation made sure that the air training institute could recruit and train students, you know, to their maximum uh, capacity of 100. And that was really, you know, uh, a, a good way to increase the number of health workers enrolled and then, you know, qualified at the end of the, of the program. Due to the bonding system, female employment rates across the region also increased. The good story about employment, you know, in some days or in some other states, uh, usually when you go to institution, you study and leave. But in my states, because of the foundation went for head late, immediately when the students uh, passed, graduated, we write their name and forward it to the state government and we follow it off. We follow it up to ensure that these students are employed and posted back. And that is also part of the success that more applicants are being attracted to the profession. You will notice that when we are doing admission, we have applicants that already have their degree in other fields, in health education, chemistry. But because of the issue of automatic employment that leadership of the state is doing, so we attract so applicants from all over the states. People are looking for employment, they cannot get it. Despite the fact you, are, you have your first degree, you cannot be employed. So they are coming back to read middle free because like there is an OU that when they graduated, His Excellency will sign an automatic appointment for them. So that is the big story about it, the employment. Improving the number and quality of midwives in northern Nigeria not only improved women's access to care, but it also improved their employment opportunities, their socioeconomic status, their education, and their ability to educate others. 
respect for working women grew within the community, and traditional leaders, who may have once prohibited women from working, began to support them. Here's Adatoro. And we've seen we've seen that work under the Women for Health uh, program. You know, women are accessing healthcare, uh, care much more than before the Women for Health program. Uh, women say now, you know, that they they trust the health workers. They find the health workers acceptable because the health workers are from their own community. They speak the same language. They have the same values and norms. So that's has led to you know, a lot of uh, client um, satisfaction, improved quality of care as well. The second thing I, I will quickly talk about is about the uh, uh, teenage um, childbearing, you know, uh, number of teenage uh, pregnancy. You know, the, the use, the, the support that the program, you know, gave to young women or uh, young girls in rural communities actually helped to keep the, the girls in, in schools, in education for longer. And as a result, you know, and uh, of course, to the change in community perception, the change in community, you know, the, the norms, the, the, the paradigm shift, you know, to that support women going into education, going into a training, working away from home, help to keep girls in education. And as a result, you know, reduce, you know, the number of uh, teenage um, childbearing in, in, in the North. But then we saw other um, impacts, which is um, enhanced um, gender equality and women empowerment. So we, we, th- there was this change in perception. I told you how the, how the culture and religion served as barriers, you know, at the beginning, you know, when we started our, our discussion. But then what, what we saw uh, uh, as uh, Women for Health program implementation started and towards the end was this shift, you know, in community perception, in community acceptance of allowing women, you know, to study as health workers and then to also uh, um, work as health workers, you know, to be able to work outside of the of the home. Uh, we had a number of uh, students that graduated from the program, so they w- were able to like earn money. So there was uh, the economic empowerment. Uh, a lot of the women were then, you know, later were being uh, taught, and then from various uh, uh, evaluation as well, that women, uh, those women were now being involved, you know, in decision making in the community. You know, they were seen as role models, you know, uh, in, in the community, and that enhanced, you know, other girls to want to uh, stay in school and to want to remain uh, in school. So these were some of the um, uh, impacts that the Women for Health program had. From Hadiza's vantage point as a college provost, she also experienced a change. We look at it that Women for Health program is a game changer. From the beginning, there was no midwives, but now we have the midwives. In fact, we are even uh, trying to sustain some of the program they have instituted in the institution. And then the state also have sustained the foundation year program. Still, it's ongoing, and there's an edict sign, the law sign for the foundation year program. So meaning to say that uh, we have accomplished many things from the movement for health, and it was a game changer, and that is why my state is adapting it to sustain it. And then to balance this, coming back to, the, to, to capacity building, I can beat my chest to say that my success is as a result of the capacity building I have received from Women for Health. 
let me start from the beginning. I was opportune to be the first, I have said, midwife lecturer. And I have received so many capacity building, be it in Nigeria and abroad, because we are opportune to visit the Royal College of Midwives, where we have a workshop there. So the success about the capacity building that also extends to the academic performance of the student, because at the moment we are sustaining 100% success for the student. And that has gone a long way off, infecting the quality of teaching. All the teachers have been exposed to have a training about improving the quality of teaching, student-centered learning, e-learning, and it is the success of my story of my leadership. Because like I said, it's a military society. I faced so many challenges, particularly from the male counterpart. But because I, I, I was exposed, I was able to manage some and to overcome them with some managerial skills training that I received, with the supports of my management, uh, some of the senior staff that are supporting me. Improving reproductive health improved gender equality across the society. It helped women become more educated, participate in the workforce, and overcome some of the chauvinism that existed in the community. Their improved status also benefited everyone. Children were less likely to die in childbirth because of the better health care. Women added income to their households as healthcare workers, and the whole society became more educated as girls were encouraged to stay in school and postpone early pregnancies. Improving reproductive health does improve gender equality. Next time, we wrap up our discussion on gender equality and health by asking what's next and where do we go from here? What are the lessons for the international development and public health community? And how can we make our sector and our societies more equal? Stay tuned. Unburdened is a DAI production. Check out our show notes for links to the research we used in this episode. If you liked the show, leave us a rating, or you can get in touch with me, Megan Howe, on Twitter. For more information, visit our website at dai.com slash unburdened dash podcast. See you next time. Special effect, special effect.